in Bible study, different people kind of contribute. We have this like open dialogue uh, uh, with people running around, but um, this morning, if you'd allow me the grace, I, I would love to jump right in to try to not just, uh, you know, um, wrestle with this passage, but really try to wrestle with this passage in context of the whole book and what, what Peter's really been trying to say for the whole letter uh, to these churches and and maybe how this how this passage has a part to play in that that overall intention and what that might be. I want to talk to this morning about how the church and our our movement of churches throughout the city, but your microchurch in particularly both. The church needs shepherd leadership and humility to endure suffering together. If we're going to persevere together, if we're going to make it all the way through together, if we're, if we're going to get through hardship and suffering, and the, the sacrifice of missional leadership, the sacrifice of, of, of throwing our lives into the fray against evil in the city, if we're going to make it over the long haul together, it requires shepherding leadership and humility. You see, after spending most of his letter focusing on the church's relationship to the empire and the church's relationship to suffering and the church's relationship to Rome and to Nero and to governors and to uh, unbelieving spouses and, to, and, and uh, to society as a whole and wrestling with the church's witness in the nature of the way in which it embodies holiness and the way in which it, it, it embodies submission as an ethic to proclaim and advance the kingdom of God, suddenly Peter, at the, at the end of this letter, appears to care deeply for the church's relationship to one another. Not just the church's relationship to Rome, to Nero, to neighbors, to marketplace, but the church's relationship to one another and their collective identity. There's this all the way through top to bottom, this, re- this repetitive unity language that uh, elders should be shepherds of God's flock, God's family, that the younger should submit to the older, that all of you, all of you should clothe yourselves in humility, and that we should be in solidarity in our suffering with the whole family of believers. He refers to Silas as his brother, to Mark as his son. He says that she, referring to the church, is chosen together with you, chosen together with you. And then that very last line to greet one another again, the second time he said it in the text, one another with a kiss of love and to inherit peace, the peace of Christ to all of you. And in the same chapter that he's got this, this, this shifted focus to the church's relationships to one another and to this family language, this family ethic, and the way that he's repeating that theme throughout in the same chapter, in the same line of thinking, is the first time where Peter mentions the devil directly, whose primary work in the world is to fracture, to separate, to divide, to kill, to destroy. You see, if the devil were to have his way, there would be no one another. 
There would be no flock, there would be no all of you, there would be no chosen together, there would be no family of believers, there would be no elders shepherding the young, nor young submitting to the old, there would be no kiss of love, nor inheriting the peace of Christ, none of it. You see, the devil has been about this life of fracturing and dividing and accusing and slandering since the beginning. It is what he is about. You see, in a, in, a, in a world, in the garden, since the very beginning, in a world of uh, intimate and interdependent connection and unity between God and humanity, and interdependent connection and holiness and unity between humanity and each other, one another, and between humanity and creation, this uh, uh, divine order in the Garden of Eden. This in, in total unity, in interdependent order, divinely mandated, divinely created, nothing disrupting it. And the devil as serpent enters the scene with what? Did God really say? Did God really say? Immediately trying to, to uh, replace trust with distrust. Immediately trying to replace uh, 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 belief with with a little bit of doubt, and trying to place the first wedge, which when hammered by people, would create the first fracturing, the first separating of this divine unity. You see, our sin resulted in our broken relationship with God, our broken relationship with each other, and a broken relationship with creation. Breaches that we, that we created and yet we cannot heal or mend. Breaches that we created and we still experience with one another, still propagate with one another, and yet we do not actually have the goods within ourselves to mend or heal in any way. And the aim of the devil, since the beginning, the cosmic function, the hope, the core hope of the devil is to keep the fractures and to make it worse, to keep the walls of hostility and to make it worse. To keep our relationship with God broken, to keep our relationships with one another broken, to keep our relationship with the world in which we were called to steward broken. And the church is called to actually be both a foretaste to a dying world of a future hope in which God has actually come through Christ by the spilling of His blood to actually mend every divide to actually heal every breach, to actually tear down every wall of hostility, and to make all things new. Make all things new. And the church is called to now be like a foretaste to a dying world of this future hope and a warning shot to the devil that Christ has won and it's game over. I mean, Ephesians says, Paul says twice, the church actually reveals to the powers and principalities that, that Jesus is Lord, via the way in which we interact with one another and the way in which we interact with a dying world. So in a context of high suffering, suffering which the devil will try to leverage to devour us, to devour us, prowling around, the church must stand firm in the grace of faith and unity. And I think what Peter's doing is, is, is he's seeing the ways in which suffering can pressurize the church and actually cause the church to actually fracture. He's bringing in all this family, one another, unifying language, turning his attention to the church's relationship with one another in the context of suffering. 
and actually calling their attention to the work of maintaining and holding fast to that unity. And the charges that he offers is, hey, elders, listen, elders in the room, shepherd the flock that's under your care. Shepherd the flock. This is the archetype metaphor for your leadership. Shepherd the flock. Clothe everybody, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility, be humble, and be and third, be alert and sober-minded about your common enemy, the devil, that's prowling around. Resist him. These are the mandates. These are the mandates. I just want to take them a, a little bit each, one at a time. Be shepherds of the flock under your care. I think unity lives and dies on good shepherding leadership. And as soon as that, that original audience, that especially the original Jewish audience, would have heard these lines, be shepherds of the flock under your care, I think a Jewish audience would immediately think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, depending on your translation, I shall not want or I lack nothing. I remember when I was... Uh, my, the first year that I was a believer, the first year that I, I had kind of surrendered my life to Jesus, I had a spiritual director, and we would meet weekly over coffee. And very early in my life, first six, first six months of like this new life in Christ, he, this spiritual director of mine was starting to unearth some like soul-level issues that needed to be disentangled in me, things that were driving me that were very unhealthy. And what he recommended, at, you know, as a spiritual director in my life and meeting with me weekly as kind of like a counselor, he said, look, what I want you to do is I want you to um, sit and marinate in Psalm 23 every day for six months. He said, I just want you to sit in Psalm 23 every single day for six months. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I remember sitting in my college student apartment at a little townhouse. I was on the second story. I took the smallest room. It was like 10 by 10. It was basically my bed and a dresser. It's all I could fit in there. And I would sit in my bed, and I, and I would either wake up early in the morning or right before bed, I'd be sitting, sitting there reading it. I remember the first time sitting in that room uh, 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 reading it, and l- like these first few lines being so powerful, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He, he leads me to take a nap. Amen. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Beautiful green pastures, silent, serenity, peaceful. You're looking out on the water, and the water doesn't even barely make a sound. It's so beautiful. It's crystal clear. You can see some of the fish swimming around in it, but you can barely pay attention to the fish swimming around it because you're just so saturated with the love of God. And you're... Oh, it's just a beautiful time. He restores my soul. He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. I can trust Him to lead me down the right paths. I can cast my anxieties on Him about making all kinds of mistakes because He's the one leading me. And I can listen for him, and I can, sometimes I can even make mistakes, but I can actually trust that he wasn't surprised by those mistakes, and he's going to turn them for my good, for his name's sake. Oh, so wonderful. And then I turn to the next line, and it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, wait, what happened? Where did the green pastures? I thought there was quiet waters. Where did we just wind up? What is happening? The valley of the shadow of death, What? 
Where did the shepherd go? <laughs> Where's my shepherd? Why, why are we here? What's going on? I remember my spiritual director just uh, highlighting to me. Now, it didn't, say, it didn't say, even though the shepherd leads me to the valley of the shadow of, valley of, the shadow of death. It says, even though I walk <laughs> into the valley of the shadow of death, I should feel no evil. And he said, he said sometimes sheep, they just, walk, they just walk astray. They just take themselves right into death's gaze. They just take themselves right into the dark places. And sometimes, he, he's, I just remember him saying, and sometimes in order to get to the quiet waters, in order to get to the green pastures, the shepherd does have to lead you through the shadow of, in the valley of the shadow of death. It's the only way to get there. It's the only path. Sometimes you go there yourself and you're not supposed to. Sometimes he leads you right through it. And it doesn't even actually matter that you're there. It matters that you don't have to fear evil. You don't have to fear anything. Not just because he's, he's, he's with you, not just because he knows you, but because, because your God has a rod and a staff, <laughs> and they comfort you. And sometimes you're, you're walking the wrong direction, and he's got to use that staff to kind of buck you the, wrong, the other direction. That stings a little bit, but you're actually comforted by that. You're comforted by the discipline of God knocking you back the right direction. And sometimes he uses that staff to break the jaw of a wolf. And that's comforting. You better believe that's comforting. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. What do you have to fear? What do you have to fear? Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear nothing, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is, our, this is what that original audience, as soon as he starts using this language of flock and shepherd, this is immediately what they would think of, Psalm 23. This is the, this is the anchor, the archetype for shepherd leadership. But he's saying you, like elders, elders in, this, in the churches in Asia Minor, you elders, you be shepherds to the flock under your care. Well, how do you be elders? How, how do you be shepherds? What does it mean for in my leadership to be a shepherd? I think shepherds walk with people in and through suffering. They try to prevent people from going to unnecessary suffering when possible. And I think they help people interpret suffering in the context of a trustworthy God. And maybe that third one's the most important. It's not just that we, we and by the way, we as also sheep who are still under the leadership of the great shepherd, the good shepherd, who should never actually replace the leadership of the great shepherd. And as shepherds, the best we can do is actually be conduits of the great shepherd and lead people to the great shepherd but what we do is we, we don't disconnect from people's suffering. We actually engage in it with them. We, 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 we carry the burden with them. We try to prevent it where possible. And maybe the most important thing, and maybe exactly why Peter's putting this at the end of, of this book, at the end of this volume, is that, and it's exactly what Peter has been doing for five chapters now, is actually helping, this is leadership. It's helping people interpret their suffering, understand their suffering, Understand what it means, where God is in it, how to experience it, what, how to respond to it, what to do with it. That requires shepherding, good shepherding. But I think faithful shepherding leadership in the church has been in short supply for quite some time. A couple years ago, I drove over to Orlando 
in the spring for the largest church planting conference, I, at least in America. I don't know if it's in the world or not. I'm not trying to drop names over here, so I'm not going to say it. So, uh, but it's a, it's a really big church planting conference over in Orlando. Um, and I couldn't go to the whole conference. You know, it's only like an hour away or whatever, but I couldn't go to the whole conference because I couldn't afford it, um, which says something. But the, uh, that, but again, I'm not trying to drop names or whatever, but the, you know, it's, it's very expensive. But it's on this, like, it's, it's uh, typically hosted at this, like, massive, multi-building kind of campus. Um, and uh, I wanted to go on, like, Wednesday afternoon of the three or four days, even though I didn't have a registration, because Keisha and Melissa were doing a workshop, and I wanted to just be in on their workshop. So I went, and I snuck in to the conference just to go to their workshop um, on Wednesday afternoon. So I went to their workshop, and it was great, and when, when I got out of it, we were in, in the schedule, there, we were in like this dual, like this two-workshop z- space in the conference, um, and then there was like a break or whatever, and we got out of the workshop, and I just realized I've got a little time. If I drive back to Tampa, it's just going to be like, I'm not going to have, you know, much to do there, so why don't I just step into one more uh, workshop while I'm here? I'm here. I'm on site. But the map of this place is just like expansive and like I, 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 it took me way too long just to find where I currently was and, uh, and I, I had no idea like if, and there was like a hundred workshops per little block so it was like decision paralysis if you went to look at it and you had to go like, like look at everything and try to make a decision. If you make the decision, you got to go find the place, that's going to take two hours. So I just decided on this floor that I'm on, there's like four workshops happening so I'm just going to pick one of the four that's on this floor. I'm just going to look at each one and just decide which one I'm going to go to. And one of them was called, uh, on that floor, uh, the name of it was called Effective Pastoring in the 21st Century. And I thought, oh, this is great. I'll just go, this sounds good. I'll go to it. The other ones felt a little niche or whatever. So I just thought this one fe- feels a little general. There'll be some stuff to learn. So I went to the Effective Pastoring in the 21st Century workshop. And, the, and I didn't read the description, so that's my fault. The, the, it's my fault I didn't, read, I didn't read the description. That's me. It's not their fault what they offered. It's my fault I didn't read the description. But I went in uh, to the effective pastoring in the 21st century, and the entire workshop was on learning an effective tech stack for pastoring. Do you know what I mean when I say tech stack? Like a, a list of technology, like a list of um, apps on, you know, to use or, or service, subscription services that are like super, tools, tech tools. Uh, to pastoring in the 21st century. So the entire workshop was about uh, QuickBooks and about project management and different apps for project management and, and uh, data management tools and um, remote executive assistant subscription services and, and, you know, how to use a remote subscription executive assistant or whatever. And I was so bothered by that whole workshop, but I actually also hated myself because it was actually helpful. <laughs> it was like, I actually, I'm, this is helpful, and I don't like it, and I feel very uncomfortable. I don't know what to do with this. So, um, so I left that workshop, and I was just trying to process my feelings because I'm very slow to my feelings, so I had like an hour and 45-minute drive on the way home to like process what I'm feeling. And I think by the time I got to Lakeland, I was like making some headway on what I was feeling. And I think what happened was, it's just the, the titling or the language. I think I felt like this was very helpful for people who are in an executive function, like a, like a CEO. But the title of the workshop said pastoring. And I think that, that like, it was actually very helpful because I'm oftentimes in a role that feels very executive and CEO. So I was actually very, I was like, this is actually very effective. But I was very bothered 
by giving the language to that vocation, pastor. Because I don't think there's actually any biblical argument to make a tech stack a requirement for pastoring. And, and there was actually no conversation through the entire pastoring workshop about uh, uh, walking with human beings in time and space through experience in any way. And yet, there was this kind of comprehensive uh, 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 proposition that you can be an effective pastor by like kind of managing all of this technology. You know, my first couple years in ministry, I was trained in how to lead an effective Bible study, how to do complex event planning, how to cultivate ministry partnerships, how to curate and run effective reporting processes, how to effectively manage data. And in the second year of my my first two years in ministry, after all that training and equipping, my wife and I were on a date. We were were, um, in a movie. She got a call in the middle of the movie that her grandpa had like an accident. He was in the hospital. They weren't sure if he was going to make it. We, We left the movie theater went straight to this hospital, go inside the hospital room. Her entire extended family is standing around him, laying in the bed. They're not sure if he's going to make it through the night. And the, entire, the, 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 the aunt of the family, one of, uh, 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 Jamie's aunt, the whole family standing around this bed, and she turns to me and she says, Lucas, would you pray? My equipping and data management was very helpful in that moment. I realized I had been equipped to be something in ministry, effective at some things in ministry, but I was not equipped to be a pastor for people in pain. I realized, and, and you know who was in that room? My wife. Give her the reins. Give her the reins. In a moment like that, just turn it over to her. And I was like so ill-equipped to shepherd people in suffering and crisis. See, I, have a, I, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with being a CEO. I don't, I don't even think there's anything wrong with a leader of a church of over 80, 100 people being trained as a CEO and functioning like a CEO because I actually think it's necessary. There are things like reporting processes and money and policies and payroll. I just have a problem with continuing to call that person a pastor when they do that. They should be a director, or they should be an executive, or they should be uh, an operations person, or something like that. Because what happens, and we've experienced this, I've experienced this, some of you experienced this, when that person continues to be called pastor, when 90% of what they do is actually CEO work, we've borrowed from the business world, the church has learned from the business world, borrowing business models, and that continues to be the sole leader in in the church system, but that's how they're functioning, it goes one of two ways. One if that's the only leader and they're functioning that way, the sheep are without a shepherd. There is no shepherd. There's no one, which is a a horrendous position for people to be in. And the other way to go, which I actually think is the more often the way that go, is that there's actually about a dozen people in the room who are shepherds, and they're functioning as shepherds. But we're calling them volunteers or deacons or small group leaders we're certainly not thinking about, you know, equipping them as pastors, calling them pastors, validating them as pastors, publicly honoring them as pastors, but that's exactly what they're doing. And guys, you've got to know, this is, this is like core. This is core to the philosophy of the underground. This is why sometimes, I mean, if you're brand new to me and you come up to me and you just say, hey, are you the pastor or whatever, maybe I'll let it slide, but after we get to know each other for three or four weeks, if you try to call me pastor, I'll stop you. And I know people are frustrated about that and like that's been a thing in the past or whatever. But listen, I, 
I, I am the director of Tampa Underground, which is an organization which is filled with deacons. I'm a deacon. Everybody back there is a deacon. The staff are deacons that serve the network of, chil- of churches that are th- those network of churches led by all of you, pastors, shepherds, church planters, leaders, people who are in the lives of human beings. And the, and, and the moment that one of your people suddenly is in some kind of crisis, if they think that their real pastor is somebody that's up here, they're in trouble, and it undercuts your leadership. You're their pastor. You should be in the hospital. You should marry them. You should be in crisis mode. You should be counseling. Because you're way more equipped and better at it than people who are not engaged in those people's lives. I'm just a deacon. I'm a director. I, you want to look at reports? That's what I got to do all the time. Don't. No, no, you don't want that. You don't want that. You don't want that. You see, shepherding is the work for which humanity is craving. Your neighborhood doesn't need a CEO. Your neighborhood needs a shepherd. Your college campus does not need a CEO. There's plenty of them. Your college campus needs a shepherd. Your workplace doesn't need a CEO. It's probably already got one and five others that want to be it. They need a shepherd. Needs a shepherd. Your workroom needs a shepherd. Nebraska Avenue needs shepherds. The poorhouse and channel side needs shepherds. Tampa Heights needs shepherds. Sulphur Springs needs shepherds. I'm not your shepherd. But you know what I am part of? I'm a part of the Shepherds Guild here at the Underground. The Shepherds Union. Welcome to the Shepherds Guild. That's where you've come this morning. And that's whenever we get together, we're just a shepherd's guild. We're, we unionized and, and we, you know, all the shepherds have a hard day. We got a hard week and we all get together and we just talk about, gosh, I, we, all get, we all get together at the pub and get a big old bucket of wings and we split it together and we think, how was your day as, as a shepherd? What, what did the sheep do today that was wild or crazy or hilarious and amazing and we all share with each other? And two guys over in the corner are, are bleeding because some wolves attacked them and we just got to bandage them up, you know, we got to be like, you can't reach the wounds on your back, we'll help you, come on, get over here. That's part of the guild. That's what we do. And I'm a part of the guild with you. I'm a part of the shepherd union with you. I'm not your shepherd. I'm not your shepherd. We submit to the great shepherd. Jesus can lead his church better than any of us can. We can trust him to do that. We can trust him. So shepherd the people under your care. Shepherd the flock under your care. Two, be alert and sober-minded about your true enemy, the devil. Resist him. You see, you might start thinking Nero is your enemy, or you might start thinking Rome is your enemy, or you might start thinking governors are your enemy, or the guards are your enemy, but don't get it twisted. The devil is your enemy. None of those people are your enemy. The devil is your enemy. I actually think this is some of the logic behind when Peter is doing this. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay insult for insult. Bless your enemies. Love your enemies and really hearkening back to the words of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, part of that logic is because these people that you've decided are your enemy are not actually your enemy. But there is one person who is your enemy, and that's the devil. And you know what? It never once in the New Testament tells you to pray for or bless the devil. Uh Uh-uh. And you know what? If he punches you, you punch him back. You punch him back. But there are people you might perceive are your enemy, and you don't treat them that way because they're not. They're not, actually. You've got one enemy. We've got one enemy. And we're free to punch him whenever we want, as much as possible. 
or kick. I can't get my legs that high, but if you do, I prefer punch, whatever. The moment the church, given missional impulse to battle evil, the church embedded with missional impulse to combat evil, every single one of you, the moment you're baptized, you are ordained and commissioned in the priesthood of all believers to, to, to eradicate evil and an injustice and to proclaim the kingdom of God to those who have not heard. And the moment you step into that, you, 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 the, you immediately have missional impulse. You just like want to spin that energy on evil somewhere. All of us do. And the moment that the church turns its gaze inward, oh, we're done for. Oh, man. Ooh. We're, we are done for. I was meeting with a pastor a few weeks ago of a, of a church in town, and, he, um, and, and I've heard of the church, but I hadn't heard of him, and so we were just talking with each other. And, uh, in, and I was just asking him a lot of questions about his church. And he started talking about how on the weekends, he was like, we got four services on the weekend. We've got a, a contemporary service. We've got a hymnal service. We've got a, a, like an, a, just a worship service. And then we've got a Bible study service that doesn't have any worship in it at all. It's like a, it's like a non-musical service. And I was, like, I was like, man, I've only ever heard of churches that have like four or five services, but it's the same. they do the same thing. It's just kind of like a lot of different times. So it fits wherever it fits in your schedule or if you're like a morning person or not a morning person or something like that. So you're kind of making like convenience decisions. But this sounds like you've kind of, each one's a little different and people can make decisions based on, you know, maybe what's more meaningful to them or something like that. And I was trying to tease them out a little bit like, like this actually sounds kind of innovative. Could you talk about this a little bit? Like, how did you come to this decision? And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, you might think it sounds innovative, and we tried to brand it. It's like very creative and innovative. But at the, at the end of the day, we were just trying to prevent a massive church split. Because there were a whole, there, the, the older people in the room, if they heard any of those contemporary songs, they just wanted to fist fight the young people. And I'd get a thousand emails on Monday morning about this song or that song, and those speakers were too loud, or you know whatever, or the you know. And then the the if we do the hymns and we get the people up there and we say turn to page whatever, like all the young people are like are are just checked out. Some of them just leave. We get all these emails, uh, you know the the college students are around and they hate it or whatever. And then we've got all these like really Holy Spirit people that are like everything's too structured and why are we even preaching and why are we even doing a Bible study or whatever and like we, we just got to like let's just have worship, let's just do worship, let's just do prayer. And then we've got all these like heavy like cessationist Bible people who are like why are we even worshiping, let's just study the Bible constantly, all this focus on music is just a waste of time, what are we doing? Uh, let's just do a Bible study. And so they, they literally were like, they were, it was getting so hostile, so volatile that they just decided like, okay, let's just do four services because it's like, let's prevent a massive church split. And then they branded it as kind of like innovative and like we're, we're kind of like doing a new thing or a different thing. And I walked away from that meeting and I just felt, oh my gosh, there is so much, there is so much missionary energy and potential in that community and they've just mis misidentified their enemy. That's all they did. They just decided to turn at each other. And find evil. Find things to fight. That so, energy is so wasted. <laughs> there's, there's, like, there's like real stuff to fight out here. We could use your help. Your time, your labor, you know, anything. You could use your energy, creativity, all of it. I actually think Peter is responding to like real problems that are happening locally. The young might start turning on the old. Folly of youth, you know. Just, just buck against anything the older generation does. The older generation might start uh, turning on the youth, thinking they're just whatever, unwise or un dishonoring. 
just don't want to listen to us while we're away. The Jews against the Gentiles. The Gentiles might turn against the Jews, but don't get it twisted. The devil's our only enemy. That's it. The devil is our enemy. And his core work is to fracture and divide. What better way to do that than to convince us that we have a whole bunch of enemies in the room? And when that happens, slander becomes normal and accusation becomes the common currency we trade amongst one another. And remembering, and this is what, this is what Peter's doing. This is what Peter, in his shepherding leadership, in this letter, this is what he's doing. Remembering that the devil is our common enemy is the way in which we resist him as he is trying to actually convince us the opposite. we got a whole bunch of other enemies. And the call is to be alert and sober and resistant to the devil as our only common enemy. It's actually a function of shepherding leadership. Peter is modeling good shepherding leadership here. Shepherds are alert to the enemy, sober about the work of the enemy, resistant to the divisive and accusatory work of the enemy, and remind others to be alert and sober of him also. So shepherd your flock, be alert and sober-minded and resist the enemy. And this last one, all of you clothe yourselves in humility, humble yourselves. I have such a hard time with that challenging word. I think the challenging part about it is it says it's something you do to yourself. Humble yourself. You do it to yourself. And just in case you don't feel very like... uh, you know, you don't want to make that a priority or you don't feel very motivated to try to do that. If you don't do it, God will do it. Is that, do, I, do I need to say any more about that? I mean, you, you humble yourself. I mean, it's okay. If you don't want to, it's okay. You're a free person. You make your own choices. But if you don't, God will humble you. That's enough for me. It's enough. But I think the immediate question becomes like, okay, I would like to avoid that, so I'm going to humble myself. But what does that mean? What does it mean to humble yourself? What does it mean to choose that way? and to prevent God from doing it for you. And I think this week when I was wrestling with that, I was reminded, I do, th- I do think Jesus offers this, I do, I do think he offers like a little bit of a teaching that's helpful across life when he talks about this banquet. And he's, sit- he's, he's uh, uh, sitting amongst uh, Pharisees and scribes and religious teachers, and he, and he just starts to diving into a teaching. He says, you know, when you go to a banquet, you shouldn't take the like high seat you shouldn't take the seat of honor uh, because it might not be your seat. <laughs> and somebody might come along, somebody whose seat that is, might come along and say, yo, that's not your seat. That's my seat. You're going to have to go sit in the back. And that would be very shaming, very embarrassing, very dishonoring. You would be humbled because you didn't humble yourself. So when you go to a banquet, you should actually choose the low seat. You should actually choose the, choose the seat farthest out. And if that's, not, if that's not your seat, if you're meant to be closer, if you're meant to be higher, you'll be invited forward. That's very honoring publicly. So, you, you know, you humble yourself and something externally will lift you up. Or you can try to exalt yourself and something externally will humble you, push you down. This is where we, we get this phrase, this terminology, take the low seat, take the low seat. This is where this comes from. I actually think it's amazing that he's delivering this teaching at a banquet. I actually think maybe he, he's almost like, y'all, somebody took my seat. <laughs> like delivering it. And I think there's people in the room like, this is very awkward. <laughs> this is extremely awkward. Somebody's getting directly called out. 
You know, I think there's a way to take the low seat in dialogue. I think there's a way to take the low seat in confrontation. I think there's a way to take the low seat in ministry. I think there's a, take the, there's a way to take the low seat in relationships. I think there's a way to take the, the low seat in your, in your, in, as, a, as a posture, as an ethic in life, as a, as a posture and ethic in spirituality and relationship with God. I think sometimes it can look like when you're in a conversation, it, it, uh, whether you're on the receiving end of confrontation or giving confrontation, I think it can look like something as simple as, let me just, let me apologize first. Let me name all the ways that I was wrong first. Let me name all the ways that I actually contributed to this breach in relationship first. And then maybe the other person says, oh, no, you don't have to apologize for that. That's no big deal or whatever. But you let them say that. You don't say, that, look, this wasn't really a big deal. No, you take ownership, and you say, I'm going to do it first. That's take the low seat. Or it might look like in a dialogue about what really happened or didn't happen or something like that, saying something like, look, I might not have all the facts. I don't have all the information. I might not be right. This is just how I saw it. It's how I experienced it. And then let that person say, oh, no, you're right. Bring you forward forward in the conversation. But you pick the low seat. It's in relationships, it's in dialogue, it's in confrontation. Humility is not flogging yourself or desecrating yourself or belittling yourself. That's actually either false humility or it's insecurity. And insecurity is just another version of pride. It's just like the other side of the coin of pride. Uh, 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 that's not actually what's being asked here. It's not at being asked to like just offend yourself, beat yourself, log yourself into some low position. Humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It is the grace of self-forgetting and being caught up by something greater. We were at, a bunch of us were at a wedding last weekend. Joe's and Veronica got married last weekend. It was awesome. It was amazing. And, uh, you know, when, when we, I, you know, I was just thinking about this week when I was thinking about humility and this, this like, self-forgetfulness, I just started thinking about weddings because, you know, you walk in, and, and at this, at this uh, church, you kind of, you didn't, most, most weddings you, like, walk in the back, and then you have to choose where you want to sit, but at this wedding, you, like, walked in from the front, and everybody could see you walk in. So that was already very awkward for me. It was already very uncomfortable. So, like, I, we walked in, and every, everybody who's currently there is just can see you walk in. And so immediately it's like, is my tie straight? Is my fly zipped? Is, I, is my, how am I doing? Is, did I, when I got out of the car, did my shirt come untucked? Is it okay? Is it too untucked? Is it not untucked enough? Like, how, do I, how am I looking? And then, and then you're kind of like, where do I sit? And there's, like you, there's just all these people that you want to see and talk to and sit with, but you don't want to sit with somebody and then say, that's kind of saved for somebody else. That gets awkward. So then it's like, but I don't want to like seclude myself and then have people thinking like, wow, what a turd, you know? I just, we, there's an open spot right here. So there's like, like all this like social, like who do I sit with or who do we talk to? Or like, I just want to talk to all my friends. And then there's like, do you sit on the bridegroom or the bride side or the groom side thing? And if you know both of them, it's very like, what do you do? Um, and, and are they going to take it personally? Is anybody around going to take it personally? Are we getting graded on this, what's happening? So then we, we, just, we just tried to make an evaluation, like an objective evaluation, like there was more people sitting on one side than the other, so we tried to sit on the other side just to even it out. That was our grid by which we made that decision. Then we sat down, and then suddenly I was wearing these, um, these Goodwill shoes for $7 that were they're, they're really awesome for five minutes, and then they feel like they're stabbing you everywhere on your feet. So <laughs> as soon as I sat down, I was just like, my feet hurt so 
so bad, like everywhere, all the way around all my feet, like all of it. It's terrible. And so I'm thinking about my feet. I'm thinking about like, is my tie straight? But I don't want to ask my wife if my tie is straight because I want her to continue to believe I know how to tie a tie. I'm not actually sure if I do know how to tie a tie correctly. And I'm just trying to make sure my buttons are okay. I'm wondering if people are feeling a certain type of way that we sat over here because I wanted to sit by you, but I thought those were saved or whatever. And I'm just like, I'm all caught up. And I remember what it was like to be a groom and you're sitting up there, and you're like, you're like waiting, and you're like, how do I look? And like, what were my vows? And did I get the rings? And who has the rings? Let me make eye contact. Did you get them or not? And like, did we, what did, you're like obsessed. Everybody's like all up in your own head. You're just thinking about yourself, and you're all this kind of stuff. And then there's a moment where nobody in the room is thinking about yourself. You know what that moment is? It's when that bride walks in. The, the, when those doors open, and they say, everybody stand. I wasn't even thinking about my feet. I wasn't thinking about my tie. Nobody in the room was thinking about where they sat. Or Joe's wasn't thinking about his vows or his ring. And, you know, Veronica was beautiful. And everybody, everybody in the room, just like, we all just, we thought of ourselves less. We became humble because we were caught up by something greater. If you want to humble yourself, and that feels complicated, and you're not sure how to do that, but you certainly would like to avoid God humbling you, which we all would. You've got to just become obsessed with Jesus. Just get, just get enamored with him. Just every, it was just, what does it mean for me to humble myself? Just, just get obsessed with Jesus. And it'll put you in your rightful place when you do that. And your rightful place isn't even second place. It's not even third place, not fourth place, not fifth place. The people who become enamored with Jesus, they say stuff like, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. I'm a servant of all. I want to become nothing. You know, I, I, in Paul's words, I consider my life worth nothing if only I may finish the task the Lord Jesus has given me. This, these are the words of somebody who has humbled themselves indirectly by direct pursuit of Jesus and then find our way to our rightful place. See, the church needs shepherding leadership and humility to endure suffering together. The worship team would come up. I just want to end on this, this last idea, you know, around when, he, when he's kind of saying like to, to, to resist the, dev, the devil and stand firm in the, in the truth of this grace, to stand firm in this because you're a part of a family of believers who also suffers. See, I think P the reason Peter knows that our unity, our togetherness, our one anotherness, our oneness is so critical and should be talked to directly is because our unity is what strengthens us in suffering. It is part of our strength. It is part of the way that the Good Shepherd has designed for us to be strengthened in our suffering. And this is exactly why the devil would come after it. <laughs> because it's it, the, the threshold of suffering to take a person completely out of kingdom life and ministry is so much lower when they're alone. And that threshold is so impossibly high when they're family, together, bearing with one another, in solidarity with one another, listening to one another's pain and struggle, in the guild, in the union. Our unity is part of our strength, 
Our strength is part of our unity, and it helps us to persevere. Guys, how do we survive suffering? How do we sac- survive sacrifice? How do we survive betrayal? How do we, how do we survive difficulty? How do we survive uh, 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 the, just the, the regular ongoing sacrifice of kingdom life and missionary work among a broken and dying world? How do we survive that? Not just for a year. I mean, some of us struggle to do it for a year, but how do we do it not for five years, not for 10 years, but how do we stay faithful to a long road in the same direction? How do we stay faithful to the end, to this life, this call? I think it's by being with others who have gone before you, who have survived it. I think it's looking to your elders. I think it's looking to people in this community who have gone before us and are still in it, still suffering, still sacrificing, and still full of joy, unbelievable joy, and still showing up for the work every day. I think it's being in community with the people who've gone before us and survived it, witnessed it, can speak to the reality of suffering, the outcome of suffering, a response to suffering. I think we need missionary peers. I think we need peers in our life together. This concept of uh, distributed load. There's a couple of physics physicians in the room. I won't, call, I won't call their names out. But there's this engineering term, civil engineering. It's a, it's a physics term that's a distributed load. Basically, that means there's a certain amount of weight that like if it's under one support, the support will crumble. But you put three supports under there and it's okay. They distribute that load. And the more the more supports that you have that are holding that weight together, the less each individual one feels of that load. And the more supports that you can get, you can get to a place where each support is barely, barely experiencing anything. Or you can have just two or three and they actually feel like they're holding up a lot. They're, they're standing underneath a lot. And I remember maybe the, uh, toward the end of my first year here in Tampa, this was about two years ago, I was, getting to a, I was getting to a place with the, the, the microchurch that we were doing in our neighborhood and some of the stuff that we were trying to do with the community center in Belmont Heights and working with the staff and it just getting so like, some of the ways in which they saw the community, some of the things that we were trying to do and they just, they just were not interested and it just felt like we weren't getting any traction if, and it felt like they just kind of thought we were like, just, just a bother, just go away or whatever. And almost and we'd built put so much time and energy into certain relationships and then those relationships would just go sour or those people would move and just like move on or whatever and it just I just started to feel like this is dumb this is all a waste of time I don't want to do this anymore this is ridiculous uh, people don't care uh, we're getting some of these relationships these people are actually like talking bad about us to others and it's hurting our reputation and it's making it even more difficult when all we've ever done is love all we've ever done is want to serve. And, you know, people you, you, you pour your life into, they just move and you're just like, what's the purpose or whatever? And I just feel like I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. I'm just going to take like a year off and I'm going to find something else that maybe is like um, uh, going to work a little bit better. Who, who cares about calling? I know I'm still called to do this. I haven't gotten that, but who cares about it? Let's just go find something else that works. Uh, you know, and we're just going to move on. This is going to be over. And it was like a Friday that I was thinking like, we're, I'm just going to kill this. I'm going to stop doing this. And Saturday morning, I had a meeting with um, Travis. Some of you know Travis, some of you don't. He, he leads a, a, a urban fellowship, and he works with youth, you know, gang youth in the, what's called the box. It's this area of town. And um, 
I met him for the first time and I just sit down and I'm talking with him and he's, he's telling me all these stories about all the stuff that's going on, but then he's actually, he starts telling me some things that are really hard and ways in which like he, they've, he's poured into people's lives and they've betrayed him and, he, and, and uh, uh, things that are happening in some of the kids' lives that are terrible and uh, 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 the way, some of the ways in which the justice system is kind of like, like uh, pivoted against some of these kids that he's working with. And I'm just like hearing him. I'm literally just listening. I'm not, I didn't even like have a whole lot to say. Uh, And I was just kind of like listening and just like, man, I I don't even know quite how to speak to this world that you're in, but I'm with you and I'm praying for you. And, you know, like, like I'm walking with you and I hear you and that sounds really difficult or whatever. Monday, I meet Damon. Damon's the director of uh, Incarcerated to Incorporated. He spent 17 years incarcerated and started like, working with guys late incarceration to develop business plans because when they get out the rate at which they go right back in within the first year because they can't employ themselves um, and, and he's basically like he spent 17 years incarcerated and he's like bro all these people in here are super entrepreneurial and they would all start businesses that are better than almost everybody out there if they just knew things that were legal <laughs> you know like we just got to put a little bit of like a couple guardrails and they're good man they're good so he just like develops this program. He's walking with people, like walking with these guys late in incarceration to, to, to start businesses when they get out. And the whole vision is like, let's go and rebuild the communities we once destroyed. I just thought it was amazing. But he's talking about he's fresh out of incarceration and he's having a hard time. He's talking about all this stuff going on. He's having a hard time finding a job. He's having a hard time kind of like getting up on his feet. He's just, he, I mean, he spent 17 years not in this world. And like, how do you, I mean, how do you rebuild habits and expectations, all this, like, totally rewiring. I have that meeting Monday Monday morning, and I didn't even, and it wasn't until Wednesday that I sat back and realized, wasn't I mad about something last week? Wasn't I, like, really, I was about to, I was about to quit. Why was that again? What was so hard? (laughs) What was so difficult? So detrimental suddenly the load that I was carrying my little pillar that was carrying so much and I just wasn't talking to anybody about anything suddenly I just sit down with two guys who are experiencing a whole lot of burden a whole lot of pressure I didn't wasn't even helpful to them if we got them up here and we had a little Q&A they'd say Lucas was the worst he just listened and just said I, I don't know what to say but I'll pray for you or whatever was not helpful at all I was so not helpful but just listening to them suddenly all the burden I felt just felt like much lighter I still had it. It was still on top of me. Nothing changed. But now they were kind of carrying it with me, and I was carrying it with them. And the load that each of us felt was distributed among one another. And we felt like we were standing side by side with one another in the midst of it. Guys, if, we, if that breaks, if standing with one another, while at the same time committing under the lordship and leadership of Christ Jesus, God, where you send me, I will go whatever evil you want to fight. I will be your instrument. You're going to bring upon yourself load. But Jesus says, listen, my, my yoke is easy. My burden's light. So why do we experience it as load and hard? It's because we need each other. We need to share with one another. We need to listen to one another. We need to empathetically connect with one another, pray for one another, occasionally be helpful to one another. I can't promise you anything. But to pray, to be, to stand, to lock arms. Our unity is our strength, and our strength is derived from our unity. So today as we come to the table, 
this act, this historic act, this centuries-long act is an act of declaration of one another, of family. And it is a declaration of belonging to the great shepherd. It's coming to say, look, I know I, I do feel burden. I do feel hardship. And yet, this morning, I come and I remember the great shepherd that purchased me from death and now leads me into green pastures and quiet waters and restores my soul and sets a table before my enemies so we can throw a party while they sharpen swords. He is our shepherd. And we are his flock. We are his family. We are his one another. And we distribute the load with one another. We carry one another's burdens. We celebrate with one another in this missionary family. So on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, you eat it in memory of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, you drink it in memory of me. So this morning, underground, I want you to I want you to come and respond to one of those two in the, in, in the sacraments, in, in the body and blood of Jesus and in worship. To either come this morning and to, and to just say, I have not trusted you as the great shepherd. I have not trusted you as the good shepherd. And I come this morning and I trust that even though it feels like I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I won't fear anything anymore. I will cast my anxieties on you. I will not submit to those anxieties another day because you are my great shepherd. And some of you need to come this morning to these elements uh, asking God, asking God to humble you, asking God uh, for a new fascination, a new obsession, a new encounter, a new infatuation with Jesus this morning to put you in the rightful place. To say, God, be great that I may be small, that I may be nothing, but your, but your child this morning. So underground, when you're ready, the elements given for you.